0: If you've been with us the last two weeks, or if you just look at the top of the outline, remember that Isaiah's focus has shifted, or more accurately, it's shifted again. It shifted between chapter 39 and chapter 40. Through chapter 39, Isaiah's focus was relatively near term. His focus was on the impending threat from Assyria. And his message w- to Judah was God's exhortation to trust him, that he would deliver them from Assyria. Well, beginning in chapter 40, his focus shifts, Isaiah's focus shifts a little bit further out. In fact, a lot further out. The Assyrian invasion happened in 701 BC. Isaiah wrote about it contemporaneously. He went from writing, Prophecy to writing current events by the time we got to chapter 38, 39. The invasion happened, God intervened as he promised he would, but on the other side of that, on the other side of the invasion and Judah's disobedience and God's deliverance, God began using Isaiah in a different way. He began using Isaiah to exhort not the people in front of him, but the people who would follow him more than a century later. He began to use Isaiah to warn that that cycle of disobedience and idolatry would repeat itself and that God's long-deferred chastisement, his long-deferred punishment of his people, was going to happen. But, Isaiah speaking, to those who would be taken captive and those who would be born in captivity, that won't be the end of the story. And as we saw last week, that's very much the heart of Isaiah's message, chapter 40 and following. But as we read the opening verses of chapter 50, the Lord comes at it from a slightly different angle, a slightly different perspective on why he is going to punish and chastise Judah. Slightly different perspective than we've gotten before. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 50 verse 1, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I've put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? For your iniquities you've sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there's no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with a blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. Okay, what in the world is going on? By way of explanation, keep a finger here. And by the way, if I ask you to turn anywhere tonight and I don't say keep a finger in Isaiah 50, always keep a finger in Isaiah 50. But turn to the right a couple books. Turn to Ezekiel 16. The key to what we just read, the key to this passage, and a a key, one key, to understanding God's relationship with both Judah and Israel, I suppose, and God's treatment of Judah and Israel throughout Scripture is to remember the church, you and me, we are the bride of Christ. Yes? Praise God. We're the bride of Christ. Israel is the wife of Yahweh. That's not something we dwell on, especially in the evangelical church, Especially because a lot of our intellectual heritage comes through the reformers, comes through those who believe God is done with Israel. So why talk about them other than as a cautionary? Why talk about Israel other than as a cautionary tale? We obviously disagree for reasons that we're going to be talking about on both Wednesdays and Sundays for the next six months at least. So we'll have a chance to read and form our own conclusions. But the undeniable teaching of Scripture is that Israel, both Israel as a whole and Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom, is the wife of Judah. That's not a fringe idea. That's not one of Patrick's crawling out on the skinny branches tonight, flights of fancy. The unmistakable unavoidable teaching of Scripture. If you've made your way to Ezekiel, you're ahead of me. But look beginning at verse 8. And we're picking it up in progress. You can go back and read from the beginning of the chapter on your own. But Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 8, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. And the covenant he's speaking of is a marriage covenant. I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen, covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists, a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry, of fine flour, honey and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty by marriage. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. So clearly, and this is, this is just one of many places that we could, we could go to anchor this idea. Yahweh and Israel were bound to one another with marriage vows. Verse, verse 8 again. I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and became mine. And we have those marriage vows. Turn, keep that finger in Isaiah 50, keep another finger in Ezekiel 16, but turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Because in Deuteronomy we have the marriage vows. Some would say the book of Deuteronomy is, in total, the marriage vows between God and God in Israel. Deuteronomy 5, at the beginning, Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you might learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord God did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. Flip a chapter to chapter 6 beginning in verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you've eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. One more chapter, go to chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. You're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord didn't set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in numbers than other people, for you're the least of all people. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the house of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments, and he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates Him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, the judgments which I command you today to observe them. And we could keep going, but you get the idea. You're familiar with, with Deuteronomy. You're familiar with this covenant. God blesses blessing and he returns judgment for disobedience. This is the marriage covenant between Israel and God. What happens next? We don't have to guess. We know the answer. Israel breaks that marriage covenant. First the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom. How? They go after idolatry. They worship false gods. Or... To use the metaphor that we find in Isaiah 50, verse 1, she commits spiritual adultery. She goes after other lovers. Go back to Ezekiel 16 and pick up where we left off. Ezekiel 16, verse 15, You trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You can keep going and, and read to the chapter to the end of the chapter. We'll just uh, pick up a couple of verses here and there. Verse 23, Then it was so, after all of your wickedness, Woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, judgment upon you, in other words, that you also built for yourself a shrine, and you made a high place in every street. A little bit further, You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry, Verse 26, you committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, your land, gave you up to the will of those who hate you. The Philistines, verse 28, the Assyrians, verse 29, the Chaldeans, Verse 30, how degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing that you do all of these things, the de- uh, the deeds of a brazen harlot. And he keeps going. Verse 35, Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord, that says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, surely therefore I will gather all of your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated, I'll gather them from all around against you. And I will uncover your nakedness to them, that they might see all your nakedness, and I will judge you as a woman who breaks wedlock. So it's against this backdrop, it's in this context, that God is speaking to Judah He's using the language of marriage because that's a through line throughout Scripture. We find similar language in Jeremiah, similar language in Hosea. It's the whole theme of the book of Hosea. But interestingly, back to Isaiah 50, God is saying, I haven't divorced you yet. I could Because you have broken our marriage vows every which way there is to break them. We took vows, love, honor, cherish. You broke them. But chapter 50, verse 1, God is responding to the accusation from those in captivity that God broke his marriage vows. He's responding to the accusation that hasn't been made yet, but a century later will be made. The voice will cry out from exile, God, where are you? You vowed to protect us. Why did you divorce us? Is that what happened? God asks in verse 1. That's his question. Is that how it went down? I divorced you. I left you. Funny, I don't remember that. Refresh my memory, he says. Show me the certificate of divorce. Deuteronomy 24.1, you don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 24.1, if a man wanted to divorce a woman, he had to write out a certificate of divorce. What you and I would call in, in, in our parlance a divorce decree. We get a divorce decree from the courts. A man had to write out a divorce decree and present it to his wife if he wanted to divorce her. And God's question is, if I did that, which I surely would have, because I made the law that requires it, where is it? But God hadn't. Not yet. So Israel, Judah, couldn't produce it. Yahweh didn't leave Judah. Judah left Yahweh. What's his point? His point is, we're not divorced. Not yet. We're separated. And that's why you're not enjoying the blessings that I promised my wife. You walked away from our marriage. I didn't divorce you, he says, verse 1. And I haven't sold you into slavery. Same verse. Yeah, you're in exile. Yeah, you were carried off. But that wasn't... Because I owed people money and I needed to sell you to raise the funds to pay a debt. I own the cattle on a thousand, years, a thousand hills. I don't have any reason to sell anybody anything. And you can't produce a bill of sale. You can't produce a receipt that says that I did. If I sold you, who did I sell you to? No, the reality, God's point in these first three verses, you sold yourselves. You're trying to present yourselves as the offended party, the one injured by me. The reality is 180 degrees the opposite. I came to my own house
1: and there was no one to greet me because you were out prostituting yourself, verse 2. Now, verse 2
0: is where things get interesting because that's one way to read it. I came to the house and there was no one to greet me. Another way to read it. When I came to you, wasn't I the one who came? When I came to you, still verse 2, wasn't it I who came with the power to save, with the power to redeem? Is my hand shortened that I can't redeem or that I have no power to deliver? I'm the one who makes the sea dry up, who makes the rivers a wilderness, who makes the fish stink and die of thirst. That's a reference to the Exodus. That's a reference to the Red Sea drying up. Hang on a minute. I'm God who's mighty to save. But keep going. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. What does that make us think of? That sounds a lot like Revelation, doesn't it? Revelation 6, which I don't have bookmarked. Verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair.
1: Okay, what just happened there? God who saved when he brought Israel out of Egypt, is God who would have saved when he came, is God who will save when he comes
0: again. In one verse, God just pulled together He's the one who saved out of Egypt. He's the one who will save, I skipped this, out of Babylon because he's promised that. But projecting himself even further forward, he's God who would have saved when Jesus came. He's God who will save in the days of Antichrist when Jesus comes again. We're going to come back to this, to this subject of marriage. God introduces it here and then he kind of leaves it hang. He circles back to it in Isaiah 54 and and we'll talk a lot more about it then because it's a complex and chewy subject. But for now, he's he's said what he wants to say about it. He said, I didn't leave you, you left me. But even so, we're not divorced. Even so, verse 4, he says, I will come to you. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned.
1: Different person speaking. Verses 1 through 3, it was Yahweh, God the Father speaking. Verse 4.
0: He's simultaneously saying, I will come, and we're hearing from the one who comes. We're hearing, once again, the voice of Jesus speaking in that prophetic past tense. The one who came is the one who's going to come again. We said in, in, in our introduction tonight, chapter 49 was a shift after a shift. Chapter 40 was the shift, okay, it's not Assyria that we're focused on anymore, it's Babylon. And we're not exhorting repentance so much as we're promising redemption. Second shift last week, chapter 49, the Redeemer for the the first handful of chapters in this section was who? Cyrus. Cyrus was the one who was going to get them out of exile. But then we heard the voice of Jesus break through and say, I'm going to get you out of a greater exile. Short term, end of the 70 years of captivity. Yes, Cyrus is the deliverer, is the redeemer. But eternally speaking, Israel's redeemer is our redeemer, is Jesus. And we hear from him beginning in verse 4. Read it again. The Lord God, God the Father, has given me, the Son, the tongue of the learned. Better translation the tongue, well, no, I'm sorry, the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Better translation, to hear as a learner. To hear as one who is being taught. This is Hebrews 5.14 again, right? Jesus learned obedience. And this is another glimpse at that process. Every morning, the Father would awaken the Son and speak words of instruction to him. We read in Mark 1, verse 35, that Jesus had the habit of rising early in the morning and getting away alone with the Father to pray. And we think of that as as speaking to the Father, which, of course, was Jesus' privilege, just as it's our privilege. It's our privilege just as it was his privilege but we just what we just read is that it was his habit to not only speak to the Father, but to hear from the Father, to listen to the Father, so he would know what to say that day, so he would have wisdom for that day. So he'd be able to say, John 7, 16, the words that I spoke today weren't mine. They were the words that the Father gave me, the words of the one who sent me. We sometimes think of Jesus being, being, being loaded up with information and knowledge and wisdom and then sent to earth. And just, just fill all of his memory with chips. You know, here's your wisdom chip and your knowledge chip and your grace chip. And no, Jesus learned. Day by day, he learned. He received that he'd have the right thing to say at the right time to the paralyzed man be of good cheer. Your faith has healed you. Your sin is forgiven. To be able to say, look again at verse 4, to those who are suffering, to those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Did you ever realize that that was a fulfillment of prophecy? Jesus saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus saying that was a fulfillment of Isaiah 50, verse 4. Verse 5 The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. What did Jesus say again and again in the beginning of Revelation in the seven letters to the seven churches? The phrase that that, that he repeated again and again, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, takes on a whole new meaning. When we consider that that was something that the Father said to the Son, hear my words. Listen to what I have for you today. You have ears. Use them. Listen. Jesus says, I had ears. And I heard, and I wasn't rebellious. I didn't turn away. The Father spoke to me and taught me and prepared me to be used of him. He prepared me to be obedient to him even unto death. He learned obedience. He learned it in the wilderness. He learned it in the garden. He learned it every morning that he woke up so that he would be obedient at the cross. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, which you also recognize as prophetic. I put the verses in your notes for the sake of the recording. It's Matthew 26, verse 67. Matthew 27, verse 26. Matthew 27, verse 30. Mark 14, verse 65. John 18, verse 22. The fulfillment of verse 6. Why? Why did Jesus endure it? Why did the God of heaven and earth allow himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter? He allowed it because the Father prepared him. He allowed it because the Father was with him. Verse 7, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I've sent my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. Reminds us of Luke 9.51 where we read Jesus set his face like flint. To do what? To go to Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there. He understood his mission. He understood the importance. He understood the part he
1: had to play. And for the joy set before him, he turned south. Verse 8. He is
0: near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they'll all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. He headed to Jerusalem knowing he would prevail. Knowing that even sin and death, sorry, even sin, yeah, Satan and death and Hades would not prevail. But look again at verses 7, 8, and 9. What does that remind us of?
1: We touched down there a week ago on Sunday.
0: Finger here, but flip over to Romans chapter 8.
1: I'm going kind of quickly because I'm looking at the time.
0: But chapter 50, Isaiah 57, 8, and 9 are paraphrased by Paul towards the end of Romans 8. What shall it then? What uh, verse thirty one? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, with him also, freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of the Father, who makes intercession for us? Let's slow down because I don't want to just wave at this. I want to really embrace this tonight. One finger in Isaiah, one finger in Romans. Jesus says in Isaiah 50, verse 7, God will help me. He will not abandon me. Isaiah 50, verse 7, God will help me. I will not be disgraced. I've set my face like flint. I know I will not be ashamed. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Jesus says, God isn't going to help, isn't going to, God will help me, God isn't going to abandon me, so that we can say, God will help us. God will not abandon us. Jesus says, Isaiah 50, verse 8, No one can find me guilty. The Father justified me. When was Jesus justified? Romans 1, you can track it down. Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, through his resurrection. The resurrection proved that Jesus' death was acceptable. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, how would we know that his sacrifice was was acceptable, was sufficient? His resurrection justifies him. It demonstrates his his freedom from death, his ability to be a sacrifice for our sins. Because Jesus was justified, Isaiah 50, verse 8, we can say, Romans 8, verse 33, we can say, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Jesus died for our sin we have an opportunity to accept that death and enter into that death and be justified with him, justified in Christ. Jesus says, verse 9, Isaiah 50, Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they'll all grow old like a garment, the moth will eat them up. Friedrich Nietzsche, in 1882, famously said, God is dead. He wasn't the first one to have that idea. Others in his circle had been kicking it around for an ID for for a while. Mainlander, Hegel's, but but he's the one who actually said the words, "God is dead." Eight years later, God said, "Nietzsche's dead." <laughs> the Bible outlives all of its critics. Why? Because the author of it is eternal. God who dwells in it, the living Word, is eternal. The gospel defies all attempts to pervert and muzzle it. Why? Because the power behind it is the power of God. Jesus says in, in, in verse 9, they all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. I will outlive them all. He says that so that we can say in Isaiah, I'm sorry, in Romans 8:34, who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died, and furthermore, is risen who is even at the right hand of God, making intercession for us.
1: Which brings us to a question as we wrap up tonight. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you
0: fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Sometimes we have to look for application in Isaiah. Sometimes application comes looking for us. Tonight's one of those times. The question Isaiah asks to those in his future, to those in captivity, when redemption comes, who are you going to follow?
1: And it's a question that we carry to the world who are you going to serve? But it's equally a question for us as we close tonight.
0: Redemption has come for you and me.
1: His name is Jesus. And we've entered into that redemption. I hope, I think we have. I'm looking around. Redemption has come. Who are we following?
0: Is his word a lamp unto our feet? Is his light the light that leads? Or are we lighting our own torches and going our own way? There's a warning to those who choose door number two. Look all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, who light your own torches. Walk in the light of your fire and then the sparks that you've kindled. This you shall have for my hand. You shall lie down in torment. And it's easy for us to shake our head and say, okay, but that's talking about hell. That's not for us because we've entered into redemption. We've been justified. The verse after the verse where you left off in Romans is the one that says nothing shall separate us from the love of God, Romans
1: 8.35. So how does that apply to us? Okay, that's true. But finish where we started. Go back to Isaiah 50, verse 1. God's saying to Judah, I haven't divorced you.
0: We're still legally married. You are still my beloved. But you're in a world of hurt anyway. Because you haven't been faithful. We can belong to Christ
1: because we're the bride of Christ. Like Israel was the wife of Jehovah. And we can be the bride of Christ and still run around on Jesus. Still play the harlot. Still defile ourselves.
0: Still defy his will and his love and reap the consequences. Being the bride of Christ doesn't protect us from our own choices.
1: Does it condemn us to hell? No. We've been saved from hell. But Judah, though not divorced,
0: still experienced a world of hurt by placing herself outside of God's love, outside of God's will, outside of God's plan. How do we not do that? How do we avoid verse 11?
1: How do we stay close to Jesus? I don't know about you, verses 4 and 5
0: rock me. Jesus is God, but when he came incarnate, still fully God, one of his highest priorities, if not his highest priority, was to meet with God. To get alone with God the Father every day. He met with God and sat with God and spent time with God to hear from God morning by morning. To get that day's wisdom. Reminds us of manna, right? Had to gather manna every day. Couldn't gather for anybody else. Had to gather your own. Couldn't keep it overnight. Had to gather it every morning. Had to go with to God every day with ears to hear. And then Jesus took that day's wisdom and he walked it out. Lived it out, used it to love others, to serve others, to bless others, others who were searching, others who were struggling,
1: knowing, verse seven, that God was with him as he did. What would happen? What would the church be like? What would the world be like if that was all of us? Father, I, I pray that you would draw us. We sang earlier. Draw us close to you. But you... Your invitation always requires our cooperation. You're not going to draw us against our will. You can remove our peace, and we hope you do. You can remind us of what's real, and we pray you will. But even more than we ask that you draw us, Lord, would you meet us? And would you speak wisdom to us the way you spoke it to Jesus? Would you reveal the day ahead, the things that will be important to remember, the things that we'll need to not forget? And as we walk out in that
0: wisdom, confident that you're with us, never leaving us or forsaking us, would
1: you use us, Lord? draw us close to you, and send us to those who need you. We ask in your holy name. Amen.